0: Welcome to the Mass Bar Beat Podcast, the official podcast of the Massachusetts Bar Association, available free to members of the bar as well as the public, featuring lively discussions about important legal developments, interesting stories about NBA members, and helpful practical information about the law that matters to all of us. I'm Jordan Rich, and with me today is attorney Heidi Webb, and our subject, as the new year begins, is Divorce. Heidi started out working with her family law firm, Webb, Webb & Martin, which was established back in 1912. Prior to becoming an attorney with expertise in family law and divorce, she received her master's in education from Harvard, where she concentrated on counseling and consulting psychology. Heidi Webb combines years of experience understanding and maneuvering through divorce law with compassionate understanding of the effects of divorce on real people and real families. She's a family law section council member of the Mass Bar Association and is soon to publish a book called Dissolution to Evolution, Navigating Your Divorce Through the Consilium Process. And we'll talk more about that process shortly. Heidi, it's delightful to welcome you here to our podcast today. And uh, let me just say at the outset that this stuff is not easy, what we're going to be talking about. And this time of the year, the beginning of a brand new year, brings with it a lot of joy, but it also brings a lot of strife and divorce is part of that.
1: It does. First of all, thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, anytime people are at the cusp of something new, they question where they've been and where they're going. So it's only natural that at the beginning of a new year, and especially because the holidays are so loaded, people spend a lot of time together together. Um, Some of that's great and some of that's really stressful and I think it causes people often to reevaluate and ask questions Mm -hmm. about um, All their relationships, but particularly about their marriages
0: in your work in the education committee and beyond and in your professional work What you've outlined a lot is various pathways to to reaching settlement to reaching finality People may be under the misconception. There's only one way or maybe two to get the job done So let's start there. Uh, Divorce is a complicated procedure, but there are many avenues, correct?
1: Yes. And one thing, I think it's interesting you use the word finality because I often say to people that if you have children and you have money, when the judge says it's over, it's really not. Mm. And that idea of sort of finality as opposed to restructuring, I think is something that's really um, an important um, distinguishing linguistic, um, I guess, just an important word to think about. Because you know, you're know, you still on the same grid. You may not be any longer sort of at AH if that's where you were um, on the grid, but you are there and you're still going to interact in some ways. So you do have agency about how, um, how to do that, but if you don't give it any thought, then it will just sort of happen to you. So in terms of the process, yeah, there are different ways to do it. And I think different dynamics, social and psychological and Actual sort of financial dynamics of a relationship, a marriage, a partnership require different ways to evaluate um, the best restructuring for mm. a family. Is that mediation? Is that arbitration or a collaborative divorce or the more traditional process?
0: Mm-hmm. Holistically, there's a lot at play here. And let's address the attorneys in the room <laughs> listening to the podcast or wherever, if they're driving or wherever. They are faced with a with a very difficult emotional crisis at mm-hmm. the moment dealing with divorce. They all know that going in. But what can attorneys learn these days from the research and from the work you've done how to handle these things?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's such um, difficult in emotional work. And uh, law schools are great at teaching sort of the... Uh, the legal aspects of a divorce, and and lawyers sometimes just have an aptitude and an empathy for their clients, often mm-hmm. and hopefully. They go into it because they want to help people and they are empathic. But it doesn't mean that they have a great understanding of sort of the psychological underpinnings of uh, human development and human dynamics. And I think because we're siloed um, as students early in the education process after college and people make choices. Do I go to law school or do I get a degree in clinical psychology? And, you know, maybe you have a spattering of those uh, courses in school, but you're not really delving deeply into the psychodynamics in law school. Mm -hmm. That's just not what that education's about. So you enter the field at a disadvantage, really, if you don't have that background.
0: We'll talk more about some of these important elements that any attorney must employ. But I want to go back to the nuts and bolts because you kind of introduced some of them, and that is how do people legally get divorced these days? You mentioned Mm -hmm. there are various avenues. Just run through them again for us.
1: Sure. Um, First of all, when people get married, they don't often think of anyone other than their partner as being in the relationship with them, but the state is also. So it's sort of a third and usually silent partner, at least it's a silent partner until the divorce. When this sort of the next time, I mean, either they, they affirm that a marriage is, is allowed when you get married and they also have to then allow the divorce. But how you get to that divorce can take uh, a diff- different path. So people can decide to work with a mediator, someone who's neutral and helps people get to yes, basically helps them listen to what the issues are that they need to um, work through and agree upon and um, help them come to an agreement. In the end, a court always has to allow the agreement, allow a judgment, sort of saying that the the marriage has been dissolved. But up until that point, whether or not you're in court filing motions asking a judge to make decisions on support or um, other uh, issues if the parties can't make agreements up front— Um, or whether they're making their own agreements really is uh, up to the clients and their lawyers, if there are lawyers involved, to decide upon.
0: Mm.
1: So um, it can be a hybrid. Sometimes people can mediate. A custody or a shared parenting agreement, but decide that there are issues involving a business valuation that they just need to do a lot more in-depth discovery on or figuring out between um, documentation back and forth between between lawyers in order to really Mm -hmm. resolve. Mm -hmm. Um, Arbitration is something that um, has not been used as commonly as... um, it is, I think it's becoming a little bit more uh, used, at least in this part of the state. It's becoming uh, used more actively. There's actually um, some legislative uh, movement in that direction to sort of codify what arbitration really is, which would make it easier, I think, for people to employ in a more regular basis. Mm. Um, but it's private court is sort of how I often describe it. It gives you more control over the um, the process, the time frame. Um and um, but it does have a binding decision to it as just as a court does. Let
0: me ask you about one specific thing that uh, a listener brought up. Limited assistance representation for those who are obviously financially strapped. Mm-hmm. That's also an option.
1: Yep. Limited assistance representation is really using a lawyer's services for a very discreet um, task, not for the entire divorce. I so see. if you feel like you just need to go in and you just need help with drafting one aspect, you can hire someone just for that piece. And typically, if a lawyer's um, engaged on a case, they then have to ask uh, the court for their withdrawal if they're no longer involved, but in a limited representation, mm-hmm. they can just be involved for one limited.
0: I've done my reading and you've been writing on the subject and lecturing on the subject for years. This is your specialty. So you have, uh, among other things, listed top three mistakes. You call it the three L's. And why don't we start with that? Because that's a great jumping off point. People want to know what what are the pitfalls? What are they?
1: Sure. I called it the three L's because I think it was an easy way to conceptualize it. But really, it's the lawyers, the landscape. And the law, Mm -hmm. what are those issues? And how does somebody go about hiring a lawyer other than, you know, my cousin used so-and-so or my neighbor used so-and-so, which is... You know, they may have a good social match, or they may have liked them, or or said, "Don't use this person" because I didn't like them. But that mm. doesn't mean that the skill set is absolutely right for your case. Um, if it's a domestic violence case or a business valuation case, I mean, there are big differences in the swath of a marriage, just like any other partnership. So, hiring someone that's really suited to your case is critically important, okay. and. Um, I think the the landscape, understanding really what is this all about, meaning the processes we talked about before, mediation, arbitration, collaborative law, and litigation. Collaborative law we can talk a little bit more about, too. I know I didn't um, talk about it very broadly before. Um, but that also is sort of important because it's not only about the content but also the context. So what is it about um, – about the dynamics between these two partners that's going to make this either more difficult or mm-hmm. less difficult depending upon the process do i want to be in the same room with the person could i not be in the same room with this person is there a power difference that makes it really impossible for me to feel like i'm mm-hmm. heard with this person or is it something where we've just we're going our separate ways and we feel like it would be it would be helpful to be a part of this process um, and the law. What is the law? What does the court entitle me to? What does the state entitle me to? And what does it not entitle me to? You know, going to the wrong place for um, trying to achieve a goal that really is unattainable isn't uh, isn't really going to give you any satisfaction. So if you have a starting um, perspective of these are the things I will be able to achieve through these process, and these things I will have to seek elsewhere – is really sort of clarifying for clients. And I think it gives them a lot more grounding than just entering a process and expecting that at the end of it, you'll you'll be served well.
0: My guest on MassBarBeats is Heidi Webb, attorney, expert in divorce. And we'll talk a bit about her own model for helping people through this process before we wrap up. But let's talk about collaborative law. You touched sure. on that briefly. Give us more.
1: Yeah, collaborative law was started in Minnesota by a guy named Stuart Webb, no relationship, but um, his thought was that people needed to be part of the process and they needed advocacy also. So mediation gave them the ability to be part of the process, but it didn't give them a lawyer in the room. Collaborative law does involve a lawyer in the room at all times. So um, clients are always there, lawyers are always there, and there's also a fifth person in the room who's a mental health provider of some stripe. And they're there to facilitate the process. They're not actively providing advice or doing therapy, but they're there to keep everything on track. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you really want to engage in the struggle, I think it can be a really effective way to work through the problems. The lawyers agree up front they will not go to court on any contested motion or any contested issue. And, in fact, if if the process breaks down, you need to hire other counsel. Mm -hmm. So there are reasons – to not do it if you think that there's mm-hmm. not sort of a good likelihood that you'll be able to achieve success. But even if you can achieve a partial success in that process, success in that process, it can be um, a good a good sort of right. starting point for some people. So
0: we have we have two groups we want to address. We've got the people who are finding themselves in the divorce situation, and that could be all kinds of possibilities. And then you've got the legal teams on the other side of the fence. They haven't come together yet, but they're about to. So yeah. let's talk about what issues, misconceptions on one side, misconceptions yeah. on the other. What do the lawyers tell you and other attorneys talk about, you know, are the problems when dealing with clients? Because you're dealing with people who are at the the edge of their seats yeah. in terms of anxiety.
1: Sure. I mean, you're dealing with people who are incredibly vulnerable and scared and you know, it's just we are, as, as human beings, not physiologically well-designed to handle emotions and sort of um, logic simultaneously. So when you're being given a lot of information but emotionally really raw, you often can't assimilate that information. So lawyers are um, often frustrated by the fact that they tell clients something and the clients don't listen or they do something that's sort of contrary to their own interests – and they sort of are left scratching their head thinking, like, why did they do that? I just told them not mm. to do that. And yet they did that. Are, the, are they self-destructive? Why did they go about that that way? Maybe they could, didn't even hear it. Maybe because they're so sort of um, aroused emotionally that they're so distracted in their in their um, sort of central nervous system, frankly, that they're not able to take in that information in that sort of Mm -hmm. fight and flight. um, So even if a lawyer listening
0: who's dealing with this on a regular basis just stops for a moment, back up, let me think about this. Oh, my goodness. Of course, I know logically, academically what they're going through, but I've got to think about this from a human perspective. It might help them get through.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there's, you know part of why I do what I do is that, you know, I help clients sort of have that other perspective because I'm not actively on the case as um, legal counsel in a way that allows clients, you know, my, my distance or sort of 10,000 foot hovering perspective because I know the process, but I'm not in the process. Right. I'm allowed, I, I sort of can keep for both the lawyer and the client, I can hold that space of, you know, this is, I think, what's not being heard on either side.
0: It's interesting. You mentioned to me earlier uh, off air about the the fact that many clients don't want to upset their attorneys. Now their mm-hmm. whole lives are being sure. thrown out of balance. It's sort of like a doctor. You go to the doctor, you don't tell the doctor you've got a pain here because you don't want him right. to get mad at you. Right. But that's exactly why you're there. So what a, what a difficult thing to overcome in some cases. Sure. Yeah. And
1: it seems so counterintuitive, but yet a lawyer is in a powerful position. You don't want right. to upset your lawyer. You want your lawyer to work for you. You want, you know, you have all these these dual goals. So um, getting to the bottom of that sometimes and, and being yet afraid to sort of say to your lawyer something you think might upset them um, is a is a tightrope walk for clients. So when they can say these things to me, I can feel. I can convey that to the lawyer, perhaps, in a way that um, this is what's really important legally. This probably isn't important legally, but the client's really focused on it. So helping the client Mm -hmm. shift and see what's really going to impact them legally and the lawyer understand what the emotional drivers are can make the communication more seamless between them.
0: One of our early podcasts was on child support guidelines and the new regulations and so forth. They're updated every several years. And a very popular podcast because that is a sure. huge deal when you're dealing with divorce. And uh, I would think preeminent of any case when children are involved, that's number one issue, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really, you know, important for clients to understand up front, you know, what might this look like? Because for some clients, you know, they, they can make adjustments in their lifestyle and it's worth it to them to do that. And understanding in advance what those will be gives them comfort instead of fear. For other clients, it's, it's worth sort of working harder on the relationship because it's really a sacrifice they're not interested in making financially.
0: A recent talk you delivered in the fall was entitled Divorce with Dignity. Love that word dignity. We need more of it in culture and society and every aspect of life. But boy, it seems like it's a counterintuitive kind of message here. Divorce doesn't sound dignified, and yet there Mm -hmm. is a way to do it with a bit more of it. So tell me how and what you meant by that.
1: I think that the concept for divorce with dignity um, arose out of an idea that we wanted to gather therapists together to discuss it. I heard a lot from therapists about how their clients so often were so... um, sad and and sort of um, stuck in some ways in feeling uh, victimized by the process of divorce. And yet it seemed to me that so many of the uh, reasons for that were, many were emotional, but many were misconceptions about the law. And the therapist didn't really have a frame of reference for that either. And I'd been approached by a couple of people who'd been trained in a process called conscious uncoupling, which really addressed the issue of how do we as a family, as a couple, as partners of perhaps partners just with each other, but also perhaps partners who have children together, restructure our family in a way that will optimize everybody's outcomes. And to me that seemed like it was a much more dignified approach than just thinking how much how much can I get out of this? How much money can I get out of this? How much time with my mm. kids can I get out of this? And I think, you know, thinking from a child-centered perspective is a lot of what I do and I think that's dignified for parents to do instead of thinking about time as something that um, kids give you, but rather thinking, you know, what is it that my children need from me and from their, from their, uh, my partner? Mm. And what does that look like? And putting yourself in their position early on. And I think parents want to do that, but if they're not encouraged to do that, that's not their instinct often at the beginning of this, because they're so protective of their own emotions Mm. and their own sort of Mm. state of emotional imbalance.
0: So interesting that we're talking about something that requires Patience, listening, kindness, empathy, understanding in in yet sometimes the most combative of instances. Let me ask you this as chair of the Education Committee for Family Law with the Mass Bar Association. You know, what advice in in short bites, if you will, would you like to pass along to your fellow attorneys in this day and age where people are so intent on, on going insular with their phones and everything else. Sure. And uh, also, I should even bring up the subject of social media. That's another danger these days. Uh, can be difficult. But any advice? Sure.
1: I mean, that can be a blessing and a curse. I think, yeah. you know, actually, there's um, some pivotal— seminal research that was done um, by a woman named Judith Wallerstein. And I think many lawyers are familiar with her research. Um, She wrote a book called The Legacy of Divorce and another book called Second Chances. And it was a longitudinal study over 25 years um, about how kids fared um, in divorce. And I think one of the things that I find most interesting about that study is that social media didn't exist during it. It really started in 1975 Mm -hmm. to 2000. Kids couldn't FaceTime with their parents. There were many things that can be used constructively now that didn't exist then. The question is, how do we use it? Is it used for good or for evil? Sort of classic question. And, you know, do you put definition around that? And that's a really important thing for parents to decide up front, you know, how are they going to use that? What is allowed? What isn't allowed? You know, when is it useful and when is it not
0: Took you off on a little tangent there with social media because it just popped (laughs) into my head. I was thinking about the phones that we silenced for this podcast, you and I. But uh, again, that message to the attorneys uh, who uh, perhaps are coming out of law school even, the young bucks and, and gals who are doing this, what advice based on your experience do you have overall?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, there's been so much excellent research on human development and on relationships um, over, you know, the, the past 25, 30 years, certainly, but currently there's a lot going on as well in terms of how our brains work, how we develop over time, the plasticity of brains. Mm-hmm. I mean, all this research that's happening sort of as we speak is applicable. You know, we're living longer, our relationships, you know, it's it's not, And it shouldn't be so surprising that people have multiple relationships. You know, it's not what it was when people were dying at, you know, 60. Um, You know, it it was a different we're we're living for really long times Mm -hmm. and people may engage in different relationships over Mm -hmm. the course of time. How we see that or choose to assimilate that information, I think, is really important. And I think for people to have no shame in that is something that culturally hasn't been a norm. So I think for lawyers to sort of be on board with this idea that we are, as a society, reframing things in different ways is an important concept. And the more that we do that and convey to clients that um, this is part of sort of a life course and that there are many paths in life and this is one path that they're going down, but not sort of a shame or a failure or something that they can't sort of work through in a way and reconstruct um, a life around it and from it.
0: As a reference point, people can check out your wonderful website, which has a lot of really good information about what you're doing and what we've talked about. It's conciliumdivorce.com, C-O-N-S-I-L-I-U-M conciliumdivorce.com. And you mentioned to me that you have close to 100 attorneys that you're in contact with, working with, uh, as well as individuals.
1: Yep. And I'm always interested in meeting and speaking with attorneys who want to engage with us. We're always looking to sort of deepen the well in terms of making our clients um, have available to them resources that are really useful.
0: Well, doing what you do is not easy, but knowing that you're making it somewhat more human and more connected, uh, e- even in these difficult times, uh, must make you feel better about what is going on and the the course you're taking. Well, it's really gratifying
1: to see people move from a point of such extraordinary vulnerability mm. to one of growth. And I really do see this as two parallel paths. I mean, one, if the divorce is inevitable, so be it. But right. also, where are you going to be sort of 5, 10, 15 years from now? What's your point of your path of growth.
0: Interesting that thinking beyond the crisis, in other words, where is it going to take us? Just on a personal note, I mean, I've never been in this situation, but we all know what loss is. And I had it in my own life with my first marriage. uh, And that death, of course, is a finality that there is no end to. There's a certain understanding of this breakage, this this disconnect that's so jarring. And uh, we're just talking about it like Like two calm people here, but I think you've shed a lot of light on it.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, you know, we all see each other in relationship with other people. And I think when you're Mm -hmm. married for any length of time, particularly long, long marriages, though, it's really um, part of your identity. And you become sort of merged psychologically with the other person. And to distance yourself from that or change or reframe, it's hard. And I think one of the other things I'll just say sort of as a closing, perhaps, is that you know, because I don't see things as final in that way, but as restructured, particularly if you have children together, that's actually grounding for a lot of people to mm. sort of realize that there's, you know, it's it's taking on a new form, but that it's not it's not over, over gone. And right. for other people, you know, they'd like it to be over, over gone. <laughs> and I think for them, I would say, you know, the more you recognize that there is some some lingering to this and you have the ability to frame it. Instead of ignoring it, but be the agent of what that looks like, the happier you'll be.
0: Can't thank you enough. You're a a wonderful spokesperson and chair of Education Committee of Family Law Section, but... uh, Certainly a a lady with a lot of knowledge and care for clients. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jordan.
0: My thanks once again to attorney Heidi Webb. You've been listening to the Mass Bar Beat podcast, available free at massbar.org and downloadable on most popular podcast platforms, including Apple, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, and more. If you're a consumer and you need legal help, contact the Mass Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service, Call 866-627-7577. Again, toll free, 866-627-7577. Or visit masslawhelp.com. Let us connect you to a lawyer today. Mass Bar Beat is a production of the Massachusetts Bar Association. We invite you to subscribe so you'll never miss a beat. I'm Jordan Rich. Thank you for listening.